0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, a people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel and the son of Sheol, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the feast of the booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required." And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring the cedar the trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year
2: after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jezodak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upwards to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, And Joshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen of the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, the sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forwards with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the Father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house had been laid. And many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of a joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for those people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord.
0: If you haven't met me before, my name is Coy. Uh, I'm the Associate Pastor, and it's so great to see all your wonderful faces here today. Uh, during the ministry of a well-known 18th century American pastor, Henry Ward Beecher, a visiting minister, who was actually Beecher's brother, Once substituted for the popular pastor, a large audience had already assembled uh, to hear Henry, and when the substitute pastor stepped into the pulpit, several disappointed listeners began to move towards the exits. That's when the visiting minister stood up and said loudly, all who have come here today to worship Henry Ward Beecher may now withdraw from the church. All who have come to worship God, keep to your seats." Boy, I wish I was there like as a fly in that moment, right? Just how spicy. What a spicy thing to say. Please don't walk out. Please stay here. We're here to worship. But I love this story because it really made me think of the question, who do you worship? In our passage of Ezra 3 today, it's made quite clear who the Israelites worship. Here were God's chosen people, having been exiled from their home of Jerusalem, captive in Babylon for 70-odd years due to their disobedience, It was God's judgment upon their generation for their sin and evil with Jerusalem ransacked, torn apart as part of God's judgment upon them by the hands of the Babylonians. It was a low point in the history of the Israelite people. Their holy places of worship, such as the temple and the altar, were raised and reduced to rubble. It's been a difficult time for God's chosen people feeling disheartened, abandoned, like God was no longer with them. And yet, God remained merciful to his people. Even though they were unfaithful to him, he remained faithful to them. See, in the early chapters of Ezra, we see that the Israelites were able to return home to their land. In chapter one and two, we read that Cyrus, the king of Babylon, was stirred by the Lord to allow God's people to go back to Jerusalem. A fresh start for God's people after 70 long years in captivity, a new beginning for the Israelites. And as they begin to rebuild their city, as we can see in our passage, God's people make it a priority to begin with the worship of God. And that's the big picture of our passage today. Ezra 3 is about restoring proper worship. It's a chapter that describes to us the new beginnings of God's people who have just been shown such grace from their Lord. And as we go through our passage today, what we see is how the people of God focus their attention on the essence of worship, what it means to properly worship, how to faithfully respond to God in proper worship. And the first way we see this demonstrated in our passage today is in their fearing the Lord. Now put yourselves in the shoes of these Israelites. Imagine your home being destroyed and then you've been taken away in captivity from your home for 70 years yet now 70 years on you've given the opportunity to come back and so you make that long trip home a long and arduous journey and you finally reach your destination and you stand there looking at the rubble of your once beautiful home what is the first thing you would do I'd imagine for many of us would be in shock overwhelmed reminded of the state in which the place was left and what has become but I think for a lot of us would also feel the desire to restore the place back post-haste. I mean, it has been a long time away from their beautifully cherished home for the 40,000 Israelites who did make the trek back to Jerusalem. These were people who desired wholeheartedly to go back. They didn't want to stay in Babylon like many other Israelites did who remained there out of their comfort and security. These 40,000 were people, with the Israelites who said, we want to go home but these israelites who made the four month journey to jerusalem who were deep who miss, deeply missed their true home and would do anything to return they had a desire to want to be home the first thing they would do would probably be to bring it back to how it was restore it to that loved home that they once relished to rebuild and there would have been a lot to do to rebuild a city like jerusalem that was destroyed but what I love from the Israelites is that for about three months of settling in their towns after getting their bearings, what they did first as they gathered as one people was worship God. Verse 1, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedach, With his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. See, the Israelites, when gathered together, could have decided to start their rebuild a number of ways, but what was most important to them was that they build the altar first. The altar where in those those days gave them access to worship God. The Israelites moved so quickly to worship God. And I think this demonstrated, what it demonstrated was a fear of the Lord. It was like these Israelites who had returned home knew that God has indeed been so merciful to them that he would use an opposing king such as Cyrus to allow them to return. I think for God's people, they knew that this was completely all God's doing. He was completely at work here. All that he had promised, that he would bless the descendants of Abraham, bless God's people, God hadn't revoked on that promise, but he remained faithful to his people. And even when it seemed so dire, and so the only proper response to such a God and what he's done is to worship him. They had a fear of him, not the terrified, scared type of fear but a reverence, and awe. They saw how mighty, how merciful and in control this God was. And in verse 3, we can actually see how the Israelites revered God. Look at verse 3, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So with the Israelites returning to this place with the huge task of reclaiming their land, many of the old inhabitants of the country, perhaps Jews or Samaritans, would have been unhappy with them coming back. There would have been hostility as these returning Israelites decide to take back their land. And so with that danger present, we see how the Israelites fear God because they could have focused on building up a strong militia, a stronghold against these inhabitants of the land but they didn't. What did the Israelites do? They build the altar to worship the God Yahweh. They knew all their plans would have been in vain if God wasn't in his rightful place. They put God first, rebuilding his altar, feared him knowing that only he could protect them from their enemies. Theologian Derek Kidner writes, the threatening situation had brought home to them their need of help and therefore of that access to God which was promised at the altar. The people of God who had returned knew that only God was their help. They feared him, and so they knew the first thing to do as a people together was to worship him. And this is hugely significant and absolutely necessary for the Israelites because their issue that brought them into Babylonian exile in the first place was down to the fact that for a long time, they no longer feared God. While they were meant to live in worship of God and God alone, they had gotten themselves involved in illicit worship, which led them to their exile, you know, the false worship that even continued during their exile. They had a love for false idols and false gods doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. They no longer feared the one who created them but pushed him aside as they delighted in their own made idolatrous altar objects where the Creator should have been praised and thanked, they exchanged it with empty false worship. This is why they were exiled in the first place. And that's the thing. Their sin wasn't that they had neglected their worship, but it was that they had exchanged their worship of God to something else. They no longer feared Him and they were worshipping wrongly, which is why they were rightly captured and exiled under God's wrath for their sin, why they were given over to their false worship for so long. And that's the same temptation that we go through today. Author Tim Keller says, everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what you worship. Here's the thing, you are going to worship something and it's either going to be an idol or it's going to be God. Everywhere we look around us, there are these idols, some that are obvious like other religions, money, fame, glory. Some that seem like good things, family, career, health, friendships, and some that we don't even realize, like security, comfort, pleasure. But the thing is, if you're not careful, is that these things that you grow to, these are the things that you will grow to fear instead of fearing God. You will have a, a reverence for these things over a reverence of God. You feel helpless if you lose these things. You attach your identity to these things. You take God away from his rightful place and you place something else there. The bottom line is we are all worshippers. And for the Israelites who returned to Jerusalem, they knew that for so long they had exchanged their proper worship with one that was false. So the first thing they did as a people was rebuild the altar in fear of the Lord. In this instance, in Ezra chapter 3, the Israelite response was a faithful one. And while we may never be in the same position as them as to lose our homes, be captured, uh, then able to return, I think their response helps us see what's core to proper worship for all of us that as Christians, we must fear the Lord, that just like these Israelites who who knew and experienced and trusted wholeheartedly that their God is mighty, that he's merciful and in control, that only he could be their help. Our first instinct after going through hardship, after being shown great mercy or being restored or in any circumstance, our first instinct should always be to worship God in reverence, to fear him. 18th century pastor A.W. Tozer says, no one can know the true grace of God who has not first known the fear of God. Fearing God gives us a proper view of our Lord, that he is bigger than our circumstances, more merciful than we could imagine, always faithful to his plans and promises, and that he is worthy of our worship because he is The God of all things. Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The Israelites experienced this firsthand in being able to return to Jerusalem, and they responded the best way possible. For the Israelites, and just the same for us, this is where it starts. This is proper worship, a reverence, an awe, a fear of the Lord. So with the Israelites rebuilding the altar first, it signified their priority for worship. But there's actually something else quite significant in the fact that they rebuilt the altar first. Because in the time of Ezra, the altar served the purpose of God's people uh, offering up sacrifices to God. It required an animal, a goat, a lamb, a bull without blemish uh, to be a blood sacrifice offered up to God, symbolizing the death required for the sins of God's people. The sacrifice was made to atone for the disobedience and sin of people to a holy God because God is holy for sinners to have a relationship with him. Sin required a price. And though the whole, and through the whole sacrificial system, this is how it was paid in Ezra. And so the fact that the Israelites started by building the altar to God first, it showed their priority of coming to God for forgiveness, that they were sorry for their sins and disobedience, that they wanted to get right with God. And it's important that that they did this because what it tells us is that proper worship means coming to God in repentance. See, we must remember that the nation of Israel was coming out of a time where they were as spiritually low as you could get. Their history of idolatry, corruption, sin, and evil had gotten so bad that it resulted in them being judged by being captured and losing their home. They were so far from God, broken, disheartened, distant. This was not a 70 years of high spirits or strong faith, but very much the opposite. And yet God would call them back home, giving them, again, a new beginning, a fresh start as they returned to Jerusalem, something that they thoroughly did not deserve. Yet, As I said earlier, God in his loving mercy makes good on his promise to them. See, for these Israelites who did, not, did return to Jerusalem, they grasped the weight of the last 70 years for them. They understood the consequences of their actions, the just action of the Lord who had judged them for their disobedience. And so they worshipped him by what? By coming to him in repentance, with repentant hearts. They knew they had sinned greatly. They had disobeyed and gone against the holy God, Yahweh. Their disobedience so severe that 70 years, they've actually had no altar to make sacrifices for their sins. For 70 years, they've had no clear access to God, no assurance of forgiveness. Theologian Ray Pritchard writes, their disobedience had taken the altar away and broken their fellowship with God. So for these Israelites, now that they were back home in Jerusalem about to rebuild their once glorious city, they knew they had to come to the Lord in repentance, acknowledge their sinful ways and seek forgiveness, acknowledge their need for God. See, I think for many modern day Christians, when we think of worship, repentance isn't often a word that follows, that doesn't spring to mind. I think of churches who preach, sing, and praise of all the good things of God, worship who he is and what he's done, yet worship in a way that rarely or never acknowledges the sinfulness of man and our need to repent. Here in Ezra 3, we see a wonderful depiction of proper worship, one that focuses in on God's people acknowledging their need for God that we are a sinful, broken people and we need forgiveness from a good, holy God. King David, in one of his psalms, sings about the lowest point in his spiritual life, describing his adulterous sin with Bathsheba. David worships God by singing in Psalm 51, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David, convicted of his sin, comes to God in worship so remorseful of how he has treated God with such disregard, broken by his sin. David repents to God. Seeing his sin, he had a proper view of himself. And so he sings out to God to forgive him, to renew him, to restore him. See, on returning home to Jerusalem, the Israelites saw their need in coming to God in repentance as they gathered together to worship him. Coming from their lowest spiritual point, they knew they had done wrong and knew they needed God. Ray Pritchard writes, they built the altar even before they started rebuilding the temple. Why? Worship must always come first. Out of the rubble of their past disobedience, they first made sure they were right with God. And this isn't something... That only happened then, but still happens today. I remember the testimony of one of my good mates uh, who at a young age got mixed in the gang life, and for 15 years it led to heavy drug use, drug dealing, heinous crimes, and there came a point in his life where he feared for his life, that as his friends were dying around him for living that lifestyle, he knew that he would be next. His mum and dad worried when they would wake up and hear the news that he'd be dead. So he turned to the Lord knowing that God could turn his life around. And the first thing he did was repent. And I always remember how he would share that to me, that feeling of forgiveness and the joy he had to know that God forgave him, that God had forgiven him. And it was so momentous, such a momentous part in his life that he would have the word forgiven as his car's number plate. You know, like a souped up really nice car and you just see forgiven. Love it. Lovely Supra very nice. Uh, Only car lovers learn that, sorry. Um, Similar to the Israelites in Ezra, there have been Christians who have hit spiritual low points. Perhaps you know of somebody like this, or it could even be you. Seasons where Christians corporately or individually have fallen into sin, excuse me, and they feel like they've hit a spiritual rock bottom, seeing consequences arise from their sinful actions, feel distant from God, Know that we worship a God who forgives. To the fallen but repentant King David, the prophet said to him in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord has taken away your sin. David sings in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity. Of my sin. See, I just love the gospel stories of those believers who had drifted from God, sinned, and felt distant from Him, yet came a point in their life that they knew that they needed God. They knew that God was the one whom they wanted and needed to worship, and so they come back in worship of Him, doing it first by falling to their knees in repentance, coming to God in surrender and holding on to the biblical assurance that our God indeed forgives. For King David, for the Israelites, for us today, what forgiveness does is lifts the burden from our shoulders. That Psalm says God takes it, covers it, sees it no more. It's no wonder it's so crucial in proper worship. While we so often disobey and fall in our sin, we worship a God who welcomes those who repent and he welcomes them with forgiveness and mercy. See, the Israelites knew that they worshipped a God of new beginnings. Even though they had sinned so greatly as to lose their God-given land and privileges, God was merciful, allowing them to return, allowing them to rebuild. Author Arkent Hughes writes, They knew that their God was supremely a God of covenant grace and mercy who both loved and longed to forgive them. God was so worthy of their worship, and they worshiped faithfully by coming to him for forgiveness, knowing that he would indeed give it. And we worship that same God today. See, what we can see from our passage so far is that God not only brought his people back to rebuild a city, but he brought them back to rebuild his people to renew their faith in him, restore their worship of him, starting with a proper view of who he is, a God to be feared, and a proper view of themselves, that they were sinners in need of forgiveness. for the Israelites to receive this fresh start, it would be tempting to restore worship in a way that follows their own preferences, right? I mean, they're starting from scratch again, rebuilding a city, rebuilding worship, restoring worship. The world is their oyster. Maybe they could take a poll on, uh, of what people would prefer in their worship or customize it in a way that suits their preferences. But the Israelites knew better. As we're seeing from our passage, they were a people who responded in proper worship, as I've been saying. And so instead of doing it their own way, what we see is they're focused on the word of God. That proper worship means obedience to God's word. See, I had the privilege of going to New York City a few years back and I remember going to the main Nike store in New York, right near Central Park, and it was massive, like five floors of just clothing goodness, right? And at the right, at, right at the top was the Nike Lab, they call it, like a, a, a special place where, no joke, you could customise your Nike sneakers exactly the way that you wanted. Pick and choose the style that you want, I love Mimi shoes, of course, and so I wanted to make my own. So, I'd, you know, there'd be a big screen there, and I'd want this—I uh, want this color sole. Uh, I want this tick here. I want this colour logo. These types of laces. This material for the tongue of the shoe. Add to cart. Eight hundred US dollars. Cancel order. Right. <laughs> I think the reality is very expensive. Don't do it, guys. But I think the reality is for a lot of Christians is. We do the same when it comes to worship, that we will pick and choose what we feel is most suitable to our worship of God. Worship might mean going to church every Sunday, and that's all the worship you do for the week. Worship might mean looking at church as how can the church best serve me rather than how can I best serve the Lord's church? Worship might mean singing songs, listening to sermons and reading books that massage your ego and promote self-centeredness over humble surrender. Worship might mean, might even mean twisting the truth to fit our current context so that we worship a God who fits what we want rather than the God of Scripture. It's so saddening to see how many Christians today who see worship as following God their own way. Worship, that's more about what suits their preference, their prerogative, their pleasure. See, the Israelites could have done this themselves. Having been given their home again, they were able to rebuild their city but also rebuild how they worship. Everything was starting from scratch. But the Israelites didn't do this at all, but they responded faithfully. Verse 2, they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Or verse 4, and they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. They worshipped God by building the altar and making burnt offerings to him, fearing him, repenting to him. They worshiped God by keeping to the Feast of the booths, celebrating God's provision, just like their ancestors did in the wilderness uh, after their deliverance from Egypt. But they worshiped God faithfully because they desired to obey the Lord's commands to worship Him in a biblical way. They properly glorified God by worshipping in a way that lined up with God's very own words. Scripture: God's word was their marker on how to worship him. Obedience to his word must be our standard on which we evaluate our worship of our Lord. His word, which says in Romans 12, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because God speaks to us through his Word and tells us how to worship him, we need to know his word, hunger for it, live by it. 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is God-breathed. The God we worship is telling us with his own words how to worship and glorify him. These pages need to direct and guide our life. Because what we we'll discover is that obedience to his word is in itself worship of God. When we obey God by living faithfully to his word, what we're essentially saying is, God, you are the Lord of my life. I honour you by walking faithfully in obedience. I'm living out my worship of him as I faithfully, wholly live to love, serve and obey him as his word, by his word, sorry. And this is evident with many faithful people that we read about in scripture. I think of Daniel who, knowing he would be thrown into the lion's den for not bowing down to an idol, continued to worship the Lord. Daniel 6 says, three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel's obedience to God's word radiated his worship of God, a posture of his heart and relationship with God, one of genuine, faithful worship. Of the Lord. See, reading of Daniel and his faithful obedience makes it obvious that he was somebody who saw God alone as worthy of his worship. In obeying God's word, we offer up ourselves as worship to him. Faithful obedience and proper worship go hand in hand. So zooming out we can see that the altar played such a huge part of Israel's worship of God. For so long, they'd been worshipping idols and other gods that now back in, in Jerusalem, by God's merciful hand, they remember the true God and what it means to properly worship him, that it was necessary for them to build, to rebuild the altar fearing him as the only God to be worshipped, coming to him in repentance and obeying his word. In verse 10, we can see their joy. As after the altar is rebuilt, they begin plans to rebuild the temple, the temple too, God's dwelling place. And as they worship, they sing and give thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. It's a wonderful picture of joyful celebration as they worship the God who has mercifully delivered them. But not everybody felt this way. Verse 12 and 13 talk about how there were also many who weren't so overjoyed about what was being rebuilt, that it didn't compare to what once stood there. It didn't compare to the first temple, to the first places of worship. To them it felt like worship was unfulfilled, The thing is, even after displaying proper worship, repenting to God for their idolatry and sinful ways, as Scripture would tell us, these Israelites would keep on stuffing up, still keep on worshipping other things, doing evil. They would keep disobeying God's word. See, while there were Israelites who were unhappy with what was rebuilt, feeling like this worship couldn't be where it was meant to be, they were right in that sense. But where they were wrong was that they were looking at the past when they should have been looking forward. For true, proper worship to be discovered and practiced, we see that the Israelites needed the altar of sacrifice. But more importantly, what they really needed was the once and for all sacrifice of their Messiah. Matthew 1, verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 500 years later from our passage in Ezra, the Messiah would come down into the world. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is who all their worship had been pointing to all along. In proper worship, the Lord whom the Israelites feared for his mercy, feared for his faithfulness, feared for his power, showed even more just how worthy of worship he is by showing these things in full by coming down to deliver his people from the bondages of sin for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bondage and deceitfulness of false worship had to be dealt with and removed and then replaced by the truth of God and the liberty of his worship. While the Israelites had to continually offer up sacrifices to God at the altar anytime they sinned. Jesus came down to die on the cross, wearing and bearing the wrath deserved for them and the wrath deserved for us. Jesus offered up his life to pay the once for all price for our sin. To those who believe in him, we no longer need to offer up blood at the altar on behalf of our sins, but Jesus paid it all. We no longer need to get right with God through the countless sacrifices, but we get right with God by trusting in Jesus who has sacrificed on our behalf to save us. It's Jesus' gracious, atoning, wrath-bearing sacrifice that is what frees any and all idolatry and deserved wrath and enables worship to begin in spirit and in truth. What Jesus did on the cross is the epitome of a restoration of proper, true worship and the destruction of false worship. Because of what Jesus has done, you can fear the Lord, knowing that he is faithful and true, and worthy of our worship. Because of what Jesus has done, you can bring your sins to him and know that you have already been forgiven by his blood on the cross. Because of what Jesus has done, you can respond in obedience to his word, worshipping him by giving your lives to the saviour who gave his life for you. So to ask the same question from the very beginning, to ask that same question, Who do you worship? Who do you worship? While Ezra 3 detailed God's people and their proper worship restored, seeing where it pointed all along, we see that proper worship is fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the reason For our worship, because of who He is, what He's done, and what He's promised for us, we can wholeheartedly sing, we can praise, and we can give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards His people. So let's stand and sing to this amazing God who is so worthy of our worship.